Well, this is just another average day here at Wildwood. No big deal. Nothing's really happening here. Special day. It's actually, you know, people come and people go. It's actually a net gain for Wildwood because I'm leaving and JP is coming, so you guys can be really thankful for that. It's all good. I see there's reserve signs over here. Um, I think my family is all sitting. I have sisters from Ohio and all my kids are here, but usually we, um, we reserve that for funerals, so I don't know why <laughs> I put that out there for us here today. Now, when we moved our parents out of their house after almost 50 years up in Dayton, my, my dad stood at the threshold of the door, the back door, and said, can I stay here one more hour? And when I asked David if I could preach, I kind of felt the same way. Can I preach one more time and can I preach for an hour? And uh, they, gave me, they, gave me 40, they gave me 40 minutes and for which I'm very thankful. I've calculated since 1972 that I've preached thousands of sermons and thousands of Bible studies and small groups and so forth. So if you have a few minutes, I'd like to review all those with you. We have a few little bit of time here to actually do that. Um, of course, I stand up here with real mixed emotions. We have a future. Uh, we know God will continue to use us, but you've been, you've been with us for 30 years. Some of you have been here a really long time. So there's lots and lots of mixed emotions. I used to think the classic definition of mixed emotions was watching your mother-in-law drive off the cliff in your new Porsche. <laughs> kind of like, oh gosh. But sorry for all the mother-in-laws out there. I really hate to, hate to say that to you. <laughs> but I think what I'm experiencing right now is, uh, is, is that bit of melancholy, to say the least. And it's quite possible that if you were here 30 years ago, you know, this is what happens with church people. You, you may not realize this, that uh, some, of, some of them will say, well, we'll outlast this guy. Especially in small rural churches, you know, I tend to say that. We'll outlast this pastor. You know, we're not going to change. You know, he'll, he'll leave. So if you ever felt, if you were here 30 years ago and you felt that way about me, I just have two words for you. You win. <laughs> hey, I can't. You, you outlasted me here, to say the least. Let me just take a couple of minutes and thank a few people. I know we have folks online. A lot of people are kind of COVID sensitive now, and they're, they're not here with us. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Mike Kanjan. Uh, Mike was my boss back in 1991. He brought me on the team. And uh, Mike, Mike taught me about grace. He taught me how to apply grace to my life uh, in my home and in my parenting. And I'm deeply indebted to him. He would be here this weekend, but he, but he, had, he got COVID. And so he's staying up in Baltimore. And of course, on the other end, Pastor David McNeely, uh, very gracious in allowing me to stay five and a half years after my role as a senior pastor, um, doing the things I really like to do, which is congregational care and shepherding and listening to people and things. And he's uh, provided this fertile environment for me to do that here. And uh, he's, he's always told me I could stay here until I'm 90 if I wanted, but I'm actually leaving a lot sooner before he comes to regret that statement. <laughs> because I think you probably regret it eventually. Uh, the Wildwood Congregation, thank you for being who you are, for your love for us. Uh, we've had very few sore spots. I do have a few names here in my pocket <laughs> of people, that, but I decided I wouldn't read those, at least in public out here. You've been just wonderful to us. You loved us well. 
And uh, thank you. If you're new here, you've, you've kind of crashed a retirement party, so I'm sorry you know, if you don't know anything about this, but it'll be okay. I want to thank my children that are all here. They flew in at their own expense uh, to be with us this weekend, and um, I never wanted you guys to feel like you grew up in a pastor's home and you had to perform for, you know, for, for me because of my role. I hope you never felt that too much. Uh, so just sit up straight and don't embarrass me, please, right now. Right now. Uh, my kids are great, and they love us, and we have great adult relationships here. And of course, Debbie, my wife, what can I say about her, right? She's the reason I've actually been here this long, because you've loved her more than you've loved me. And um, a partner, yeah, it's amazing. A partner for all these years that stood by me, built her life around God's calling in my life, and raised our children with that perspective. And you can't do this unless you have a wife that's going to stand with you. You just can't do it. It's impossible. So thank you, Debbie. You've been, you've been my partner, and we'll continue to journey together as we go forward. Now, what do you say after all these years, right? It's easy to want to be clever or memorable or epic. Um, maybe I should say everything I was afraid to say for the last 30 years to you right here. Uh, but I just want to do what I've always done, and that's try to be faithful to the Bible. So I'm going to have you stand with me. We're going to read a passage of Scripture that I think is important for uh, people that are kind of casual, uh, in, casually interested in Christianity or very interested. I, I think this applies to all of us. And I, I want this to be encouraging, but I also want it to be an exhortation to you, because this is really important stuff, right? This is Matthew chapter seven, beginning in verse 24. This is what the text says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes to the importance of this passage and, and other things Jesus said in this sermon and give us insight and give us wisdom. Teach us what you want us to learn, and bless this congregation as they go forward, seeking you and wanting your will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So what I want to do briefly is give you four observations about this text, and then say four practical, vital ways that we're called to live out Jesus' words, okay? That's what we're going to do. So what about this text? Well, here's the first thing you notice about what I just read. Your destiny, in both time and eternity, is determined by your submission to Jesus' words. You believe that? Your destiny as a person is determined by your submission to Jesus' words. This is what's being said here. Now, some of us present admire Jesus, we are inspired by Jesus, we respect Jesus, but what he's teaching here is not about admiration, it's about total surrender to his word. 
and to his will. Now, for many people, including I'm sure some here, that's outrageous. You think of all the thousands of sages and philosophers and all the thousands of iterations of religions throughout the history of the world, and you say, you mean to tell me that everything is boiled down to this, this one man, this poor itinerant rabbi who walked the back paths of Galilee, that my destiny is tied up in him, and that what I do with his words will determine my eternity. Well, that's exactly what's being said. Now, that's not, those aren't my words. Those are his words. Debbie and I have often said, this is the most exciting adventure one could ever conceive, right? Or we're bonkers. Like we're crazy, we're insane, that we're following the teachings of a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago. Now you think about that. This is, this is what the implications are of the words of Jesus. And, and you say, well, why do we keep believing this? It's not because we're smart. It's because we keep coming back to what Peter said when Jesus asked if he also wanted to leave and kind of walk away. And what did, what did Peter say? He said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. The words of eternal life are bound up in Jesus. So the question, first question is, do you, do you really believe, as you're sitting here this morning, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Or are you open to all the other wisdom of the world? And there is wisdom out there at some level, but it's not wisdom that will bring you life. It is wisdom that will bring you death. That's the implication of what Jesus is saying here. And there's no middle ground. Jesus, uh, Jesus is, is not asking you just to like him. He's asking you to surrender to him. It's like C.S. Lewis said, he's either one of three things, right? A liar, a lunatic, or a lord. There, there's no other options. Secondly, you'll notice in this passage that his exhortation here is directed toward church people. It's not that the, the, the wise builders are good church members and the foolish builders are hell's angels and drug smugglers and you know, participants in the atheist society. That's not, that's not what Jesus is getting at. Both people are listening to his, his words. They're both sitting under his teaching. In other words, they're sitting in church. They're listening to his words. And some are surrendering to him and seeking to live out his teaching. Now, let me remind you, you're, not, you're never going to live it out perfectly. You're always going to be broken. You're always going to be needy. You're always going to be in need of grace. It isn't, it isn't about how perfect you are. It's about whether your heart longs to want to do what Jesus said. And when you don't do it, you're under conviction, right? Some people want to do that, and other people turn away. For some reason, Jesus' words are too hard or they're too stupid or... They're interested in other things. They don't take them seriously, and they walk away. This is the contrast that's being made, and the apostle John speaks plainly about this. Uh, look at 1 John 2, 3 through 6. I think we have that, that text on there. This is what John says, who walked with Jesus, and, and by this we know that we have come to know him. So if, if you're here this morning and you say, I wonder if I'm a Christian. Am I a Christian? Certainly I'm a Christian. 
By this we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. In other words, we're interested in what he said and we want to do what he, he says. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. It's not that just you're kind of inconsistent and you're you know, a little off base. You're, you're lying. And the truth is not in him. I think there's more, isn't there? But whoever keeps his word in him, that truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, you want your life to replicate the life of Jesus as much as you could humanly do. That's Christianity. Christianity 101. In other words, you're not allowed to nibble around the edges. Uh, to put it in kids' terms, you've got to eat the crust, not just the middle of the bread, right? You've got to eat the whole thing. And that's not an easy thing. So, some things Jesus says I find really very difficult. I found almost outrageous. You know, I mean, too hard. And yet, these are the serious things that he says. You can't pick and choose what you, what you want to believe and what you want to apply to your life. You can't, you can't do that. And I would be concerned that many church people, and we have them here at Wildwood, are just living out of your old habits and religious ideas, but not out of a vital relationship with Christ through his word. And that's not going to be good enough. Now, the third thing you'll notice about this passage is that for a while, all houses look stable and secure. They all look stable and secure. In, in, in Israel, during the dry season, you could uh, get away with building your house um, on something called a wadi. That's the Aramaic word. The, the, I think the Hebrew word is nahal. Uh, in other words, you could build it on a dry riverbed. And it could stand during dry season. Nobody would know the difference. So for a while, your life looks like it's, it's working. It, it may be true of your life or your neighbors, your extended family, everything they write in their Christmas cards, you know. Don't you hate to get those Christmas cards that just tell you all the good things that have gone on, you know, the, the, the college scholarships for their kids and the cool vacations and the big promotions. All that stuff may be true. Maybe that's been your life this year. And you're saying, you know what? Things are going really great with me. But, but the question you have to ask is, what, what's the foundation of your life? What's it really built on? Is it built on what Jesus said? Or is it built on construction material that you're making up as you go along? And the real test, of course, comes uh, when uh, life doesn't go well when life gets hard, when, when suffering and hardships and trials come your way, what, what do you do then? Where do you go? Where do you turn? And the question uh, from a broader standpoint is, what's, what's Wildwood gonna be built on in the future? What's this church gonna stand for as you go forward? Uh, a lot of people are listening to a podcast on Christ from Christianity Today about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, where Mark Driscoll uh, was pastor. Uh, you know, 15,000 people in this huge megachurch. And uh, this uh, writer, Nick Mike Cosper, says that Driscoll was uniquely gifted as a communicator and provocateur. In other words, he said provoking things. 
but the phenomenon of the celebrity pastor is endemic now in churches. Mars Hill innovated its use of music and video productions and technology and social media. What it pioneered now has been largely adapted uh, in other, many other churches, including small ones, and we get enamored by this stuff. And we have great people here that do this, and I know they're godly people, but if you think, well, that's gonna make the church, Mars Hill did not last any of this. It closed its doors when Mark Driscoll resigned. In other words, all that, what this man calls fragile architecture, didn't cause it to be sustained. And so this writer goes on to say this, a mature or a growing Christian is easily edified. In other words, you don't need all this stuff, okay? He meant that if Christians found themselves in a place where the word of God was being preached, Jesus was being worshiped, and the spirit was present in the hearts of his people, they ought to leave encouraged. That's going on here. You ought to leave encouraged, whether the experience is shallow, loud, quiet, or unfamiliar. This writer says this is just mere church. This, these are the basics. That the most meaningful things in a church or in this community is what would happen if the institution collapsed. If this church didn't exist, what, what would still be valuable and meaningful then, right? Or if the civilization collapsed, what would still be valuable and meaningful then? That's what you, get, you need to build your church on. You can't build it on smoke and mirrors. And I'm thankful that nobody around here has ever acted like they've been any kind of a celebrity pastor because, uh, well, if David was like that, I wouldn't have stayed. I would have been out of here. Or if Mike Kangen was like that, I wouldn't have come. But none of them have ever given that impression in any way, shape, or form. So all houses look a while like they're stable and secure, but what's it built on? And the last thing is this. Regarding storms, Jesus teaches kind of in this passage, not if, but when. He says, the storms came. The storms came. And of course, the biggest storm is you standing before God and him saying, why should I let you into my presence? Everybody is going to face that storm. And what would you say to that question if it was asked of you, right? But realistically, storms come in life to everyone. Everybody here is going to face disappointment and defeat and disintegration of relationships and maybe divorce and disease and demise and death. I will tell you this, knowing this congregation like I do and knowing people and caring about people, if I went around row by row and said, I want you to tell me about situations that are causing anxiety and pain in your life, there wouldn't be enough tissues to wipe away the tears in this place. Everybody here has things that concern their hearts. You have storms, and they will come. You say, well, how do you know? Well, uh, it's just life. And if you happen to skate through without that, that may not even be good for you. Because you may not have grown like you need to. Up here I have a, a binder full of material. Richard Higginbotham and I went to Uganda many years ago, and as soon as Richard got back, he got sick. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and uh, 
January 31st, and he died May 9th of that year. This is a binder full of letters to him, emails from him, talking about the epic journey that he has with God in the midst of his physical demise. And of course, the one thing he said is that God is good all the time. That was his, that was his line, right up to the very breath, last breath he took. God is good all the time. Can you say that in your life? Can, can I say that? I preached all these sermons, all these thousands of sermons, and I'm surprised I'm not more mature than I am, actually. This is your hope. Now, if Jesus' words are this important, let's just take uh, the remaining time here, these few minutes, and let's prioritize some things he said in the Sermon on the Mount or in other places here that will help us kind of get a focus on what's important to us. Now, these are not the four most important things necessarily, the only four four things, but just four things that I think you need to keep in mind and I need to keep in mind as we go forward. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it plain that life, first of all, life is not about you. Life is not about you. When you look back in the mirror and see your reflection, that's not the sum substance of existence. You. And this is the culture you live in. You live in a me culture. Everything is about me. But that's not what the scriptures teach. In this passage, uh, chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus tells people not to be anxious. Remember that famous section in there? Be anxious, not anxious about what you eat. And what, what happens when you're focused just horizontally on life? In other words, all the all the effort is in what's going to happen today and what about me and my job and my kids and my, you know, my money and you know, my future and my vacations and my this and my that, right? When you focus horizontally, you become anxious. Now, everybody has a certain amount of anxiety. This, this thing of moving, moving away or relocating, or le- that's created a lot of anxiety in me. Kind of circumstantial. But we're talking about this obsessive, this obsessive focus on, on how life is working. And that's all you think about. And then you drop into church a couple times a month and say, oh, everything's fine. Well, no, it's not. Because your life is not built around spiritual values. It's built around what's going to happen next in your life. And so Jesus, in summary of this little foray into anxiety says this to us in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That means your number one priority is to ask the question, what does it mean for my life to reflect God's own nature? It's it mean to glorify him. It's one of our five solas in the Reformation. God's glory alone is up in these banners and these canvases on our walls. You exist to glorify God. You don't exist for any other reason than that. And everything you do is meant to reflect that in, in your life. 
To glorify him means to express his beauty in all that you think, that you say, and you do. And so if the kingdom of God is the ultimate reality, do what Stephen Covey said, a Mormon guy, but he, he said, you always begin with the end in mind. You have to begin your life or your journey with the end in mind. What is the end goal of this thing? What, what are the priorities of my life going to be? I remember my grandmother uh, and even my mother saying things like this to me, you know, uh, in terms of priorities. She'd say, you, you know, you don't want to go out of the house with torn underwear because uh, you ever have your mother or grandmother say that? Don't have holes in your underwear, you know. Because what happens if you, get a, you have to go to the hospital and you have holes in your underwear? I mean, that's the kind of nuts family I came out of. I don't know. You know that? And so, can you just imagine that? You're, you're, the EMTs are there. They're saying, you know, this guy, this guy's going to die in, he has a severed aorta. He's going to die in 90 seconds. But you know the tragedy here? He has holes in his underwear. <laughs> I mean, what sense does that make? You talk about mixed up priorities. Are you worried about the holes in your underwear and you're not worried about your severed aorta? Because life's not about you. One day, you're going to die. And you, know, you may think I'm kind of morose and you're glad I'm gone after I say this, but I think you need to think about the fact that one day your children are going to die. What's important to you then? Because that's not a joke. I mean, this isn't like, well, that's, that, that happens to other people. No, it happens to you, me. What is life going to mean when your children are not on earth anymore? Secondly, Jesus tells us in the sermon that earth, earthly treasures will fail you. Look at Matthew 6, 19 through 21. We'll just look at that. Jesus says this is in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the, his teachings. Do, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, make sure you're investing in eternity. And of course, this is the parable of the rich fool who had everything life could afford him, and God, God called him one thing. He called him a fool. Today your soul is required of you. You didn't invest in eternity. Your earthly treasures will fail you. Now, most people think Jesus is referring to money, and I think that that's certainly the case. But Frederick Dale Bruner in his insightful commentary on Matthew says the context of this is about getting um, notice for one's righteousness. In other words, it's about esteem and significance and importance. Those are earthly treasures. It's also money, but it's also about anything else that's a substitute for God. And uh, he says this, Jesus loves you so much, he, doesn't he wants you to avoid the inevitable despair of placing your life and your hopes in someone or something that cannot be your savior. And that's what idolatry is. Loving someone or something else that cannot be your savior. Dane Ortland in his book Deeper says, we tend to think the things of the world such as 
Food, success, money, sex, and long vacations will satisfy our souls. The scriptures dismantle that and teach that the gifts can never, be, uh, can never quench our soul thirst. Only the creator can do that. Whatever you have, whatever you want, whoever you love will never quench the soul thirst. I've said this many times, Debbie and I have said, no matter what we've done, as many adventures as we've had, as wonderful as our family has been, all the travel I've done, nothing has ever ultimately satisfied me. Is that because I'm unsatisfiable? No, it's because I was made to have my satisfaction in God. And so are you. So where's the idolatry in your life been challenged? What do you love more than anything else? What do you, what do you crave? What do you desire more than you desire God? That's the stuff that has to be confessed. Uh, we're moving to Greensboro, North Carolina in due time, and, uh, but my children and grandchildren will not be the center of my life. I think my daughter understands that who's here. That's not enough. The center of my life must be Jesus and his kingdom, and then everything else can be built around that. And that's the same thing with you. Now the third thing, the third of four things here in a few minutes we have is this. Forgiveness is granted in spite of you. You get that? In, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says this, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts. There's forgive us. Forgive means I can't work for it, I just have to be granted mercy. Right? As we forgive our debtors. Then later, a couple of verses, he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is one of the big tests. How much animosity and bitterness do I have toward people in my life? This, this sense of rage, this sense of despicable you know, anger you know, toward people. Do you have anybody in your life like that? How can you claim to ever be forgiven? If you can't forgive people that have hurt you, Nobody's ever done anything to you anywhere near like you've done to Christ, you know, in your life. But going back to the forgiveness piece, every pastor has ever preached here in this church. Goes back to a guy named Francis Nigel Lee in the 70s, or Stephen Bradford, or Mike Kangen, or myself, or David, or the teaching team, Todd Velliber and Eric Ryan and other people uh, that have spoken have had one consistent message, and it's this. Your only qualification for receiving forgiveness is that you have no qualifications. You understand that? That, that, is, that is so critical. You have no qualifications. As the song says, nothing in my hands I bring Simply to the cross I cling. That's all you have. Jesus said, I've given my life, Mark 10, 45, as a ransom for many. It's a payment you can't make. He's the ransom payer. You're not paying it yourself. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Lost doesn't mean, you know, I'm a little weak or I'm disoriented or I'm a little off. You're lost. 
As Darwin say, he was lost as a ball in tall grass. Remember that's Darwin? <laughs> he was lost as a ball in tall grass. You're, you're, you're more lost than that. Jesus said, I haven't come to call the healthy, I've come to call the spiritually sick. The people who know they have a disease that nothing can cure except the blood of Christ. And you can't add to this. You can't make yourself better, you know, in terms of God loving you by working hard. You just accept the grace of God. And I will say this to you, if, 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 if you stand before God and you say, well, the reason you should accept me is because I've been a pretty good person, then we have failed you. <laughs> because that's not the answer. That's not the gospel. That's not your hope in any way, shape, or form. And if you earned your salvation, you might demand that other people uh, earn, their, or earn your forgiveness. But since salvation is a free gift, granting forgiveness must be given to the undeserving and freely offered them. And I would implore you, if there's someone in your life that you're bitter toward, angry, and you can't get over it, understand the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here. You can't be forgiven unless you forgive. That is very, very critical. Uh, what does it say in uh, you know, a particular ministry, peacemakers, uh, that unforgiveness is the poison you drink hoping someone else dies? Now, the last thing is this. The core of Christianity, kind of the heart of it all, is Christ in you. That seems basic, doesn't it? it? It's not laws and rituals and activities and habits and morality. It's not, it's not any of those things. There's nothing wrong with some of that. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, it's much more than that, but it's certainly not less than this. John 15, 1 through 5, speaks to this. I'm the vine... My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does uh, bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He is it that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do a few things. You can do epic things. You can do significant things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You believe that? And it's not fruit that's produced that's perfect but it's fruit that leads to a changed life. Slowly but surely, you begin to look more like Jesus. You take on the scent of Jesus. This is one of the things that Jason Burnick teaches in Israel. You get the scent of Jesus when you're there. This kind of life that he lived, and you begin to embrace things that seem contradictory in the eyes of the world. If Christ is really in you. Let me give you a couple of examples as we stop. Uh, Jesus says at the beginning of this sermon in Matthew 5, verses 2 and 3, this is sort of his blessed, his uh, things of blessedness. Matthew 5, 2 and 3, how you guys have that? He says, 
He opened his mouth and taught them saying, saying. He opened his mouth and taught them saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, not the weak, but the ones that are like him, Jesus himself, gentle and lowly, the one that doesn't, doesn't destroy people. He doesn't break a bruised reed and blow out a smoldering wick. There's a gentleness in Christians. There's a humility in Christians, and it's not something you can talk about yourself. It's something other people recognize in you. That you're poor in spirit. You realize you have nothing to offer unless God sustains you. I, I've been here 30 years, and all I can say is God gets the credit because I don't know how I did this for 30 years. I have no idea. You glory in your weaknesses. Because you say, as Paul did, when I am weak, then I am strong. That's countercultural. That's, that's inverted. Another dimension of, of his life in you is that you understand that external behavior isn't really the answer. You can look really good sitting in here, but when you go home, you're a mess. Your, your mind and your heart is a mess. Jesus wants in here. He doesn't... He doesn't care about how you look as you sit here. He wants something in here. He, he said so often, you know, uh, you, you don't murder people, but I say to you. But I say to you, even if you're angry, you've committed murder. Don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. You can fast uh, in public and let people see that, but I say to you, do it in private. In other words, Jesus drives you into the internal life of integrity and, and honesty. And if you're faking people out because you look good on the surface, but you have no internal character being developed, that's, that's not the scent of Christ in your life. Now, my prayer for you then is that the life of Jesus will produce in you a really deep fulfillment. That you'd never regret being a Christian. You'd never regret going forward. You'd never regret the time that you said, Jesus, save my soul. And I've said this to you before, this kind of illustration. I'll just close with this here in just a, a moment. Uh, William Borden, William Borden uh, went to Yale. I think he graduated in 1909. He was the heir to the Borden Dairy Fortune. Borden was already a millionaire in high school in 1909. And his parents sent him around the world on a high school graduation trip. He came back with a burden for people. He just said, I, I, I so people need Christ. So he sought first the kingdom of God, didn't he? He wrote in his Bible, you know, uh, no reserves. Of course, being a, a Yale graduate and being from that kind of family had all these job offers, all these lucrative job offers, and they wanted him to stay and, you know, make something of his life in the States. And he wrote in his Bible, no, no, uh, no retreats. I'm, I'm, I want to go and serve the Lord. Now, you can, you can serve him anywhere, but this is the way Borden chose to do it, right? I, I just want to, and he, he had a burden for the Islamic world. He went to Egypt and learned Arabic. 
And while he was there, he contracted cerebral spinal meningitis. And he knew his journey would not take him any farther. He wrote one more word in his Bible, no regrets. He was 26 years old when he died. He says, I have no regrets. It gives me chills because I think I might have a few regrets. He says, it's all been worth it. Why? Because he was living for something bigger than himself. He was living for a kingdom that has no end. And I encourage you as you go forward to live for a kingdom that has no end. Let's stand together. So Father, use this congregation for your glory. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love and thank you for your presence. There's a lot that has been said here and I just pray something would stick, some mud thrown on the wall would stick. People would be reminded of these basic things that Jesus said, that life is not about us, that our earthly treasures will not ultimately satisfy uh, the, the depths of our souls. That you, you alone meet the needs because it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, that makes a difference. So watch over this congregation. Lord, bless them, meet their needs, and show them the depths of your love as we thank you this morning in Jesus' name.